Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Shattered Lives. This is our Week in Crime podcast. I'm joined again by Michael O'Toole, crime correspondent with The Star. Hello, Michael. Hello, Chief Reporter Paul Healy. It's very strange if you introduce me with the title. It's just... <laughs> I'm only doing it because you did it for me. It's returning the serve. How are you? It's been a busy couple of days. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's, it's been a busy couple of weeks, actually. We haven't done this in a while and there's, there've been an awful lot of events happening and we've got plenty to talk about, but I think that's our job. We, we, we sometimes have quiet days, but we never have quiet weeks. No, we don't. And, um, I hope our listeners will forgive us. We're not going to cover maybe every topic that's been in the news. Certainly, that's not how our jobs operate. We can't cover every story in the news. But there's a couple of things that we'd like to talk about on this week's pod. Um, stories that we worked on over the course of the last two weeks um, and that are continuing to develop. I think the biggest crime story at the moment uh, outside of... Uh, the usual suspects, I suppose, is is um, in relation to the murder of Gary Carey. So there have been a significant development uh, this week in that five people have been arrested uh, in relation to this murder. So it occurred on the 24th of June last year. And I can recall being at the scene. I remember it was a surreal uh, scene because it, it, it was right outside the Hilton Hotel there in Kilmainham, quite a well-known site directly across the road from Kilmainham Jail. Um, and people were going about their business and were... Uh, you know, it it didn't seem like a crime scene because, of course, the actual murder had occurred in the underground car park of the Hilton Hotel. Uh, I was going to say he was he was coming out of the gym, wasn't he? And he was exactly. targeted there. Yes. So he was coming out of the gym. He was targeted uh, in the underground car park. So, of course, the scene was not visible to the public outside. So it just seemed like a normal day. But uh, what was surreal about this is that that was the or at the time was the, that was the third attempt on Gary Carey's life. Um, and it wasn't immediately clear the circumstances uh, afterwards in terms of his condition. And, and indeed, it took um, a period of time before he did pass away uh, from his injuries. But just to kind of remind people of the the facts of this you know Gary Carey um is somebody i suppose we didn't write a lot about until the first attempt on him in November of 2021 there are lots of criminals out there in Ireland uh, who are operating i suppose what would you say under the radar um they haven't necessarily got convictions to their name meaning that you can't necessarily print their name in the paper. But Gary Carey was up to his neck in drugs, was considered to be a high-level drug dealer, uh, organized criminal. And the theory is that he was, this is what we're hearing from our sources, that the guards believe that Gary Carey was effectively muscling in on territory that belonged to other major criminal gangs that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, And it came to a, a, a point where someone made the decision or individuals made the decision to take his life. So that first, I think there, there, the previous attempt in his life was it in November? It was around that time, wasn't yes. it? And he was, I think, he was targeted very close to uh, his home in West Dublin. I think it was outside. Was it? Was it in the driveway? Or was it in a car? In the driveway yeah. of the house in Ballyfermot, and he was shot twice actually. Yeah, through the windshield of the car. Yeah. And what's interesting about that? After that shooting, he fled to Spain because he really yes. he realized he was in serious trouble, and it was only. Uh, it, it, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't any. He he came back obviously to Ireland, um, before he was shot. Obviously, but it hadn't been very long. I, it, it was a fortnight at most that he judged that he was safe enough to come back to Ireland. But obviously, um, 
they, they, they were still intent on killing him and, he, and, and they got him uh, out at, the, yeah. at the underground car park. But he did, he, he we initially, if you remember, I think the, the shooting was so bad, he was shot so many times that the, the word initially was that he was dead. Do you remember? Yes. Right. And we sometimes hear this, um, but he lived. He did survive, and it was quite miraculous that he survived. But it was—it was—I think it was two or three weeks later that he that he died. Yeah, I think roughly a month. Month. Yeah, yeah a month or so afterwards, uh, he was declared dead, and then the investigation was upgraded to a murder investigation. So I, I'm told, and I'm sure you're hearing as well, that the investigation is now at a, at a critical point. It has advanced significantly. The guards have acquired a huge amount of evidence in this case in relation to the individuals they believe are behind it, and. The persons that were arrested this week are known associates of a, of a criminal uh, named Derek Didi O'Driscoll, uh, who is a very well-known uh, criminal in the in the West Dublin area. And we'll speak a bit about him, I suppose, in a minute. But just in terms of the pre the persons arrested, there is a woman amongst uh, two women and two men, and then a, another male was arrested the following day. Um, and my information is that one of those individuals is the suspected trigger man, uh, a well-known criminal um, with, with multiple convictions, uh, considered to be highly volatile. And as I said, an associate of D.D. O'Driscoll. There are two other men then that are uh, suspected of providing logistical support. Uh, and that is in terms of the Audi uh, A4 that was used uh, in the hit and uh, firearms and the overall planning uh, of the operation. And then interestingly, there's a woman uh, who was arrested who is believed to be, I suppose, an ex-associate of Gary Carey himself. And the suspicion is that she effectively gave him up. She revealed his location. location. So she revealed to the gang uh, that he was in this gym in the Hilton Hotel uh, and, and they were able to track him then, follow his movements and, and ultimately take his life. Um, but isn't that, that's one of the things that we really don't talk enough about how many criminals have been betrayed by people close to them. Like, for example, I, I was doing something, uh, we'll talk about this in a while, about the Hutch Organised Crime Gang and one of the murders that they, they have been linked to is that of Eamon Dunn, who, now, and it was slightly before it was slightly before you joined the star, it was 2010. He was a really, really dangerous criminal. Now, he was murdered when he was at a friend's birthday party, 23rd of April 2010. Now, he'd been involved in up to 20 murders himself, but he got whacked. And it was essentially the, the theory is that the Hutch organised crime gang, some of them had been threatened by Eamon Dunn, who was, he really was psychotic. And they approached the Kenyan cartel of all people and effectively decided together to murder Hutch, or to, to murder uh, uh, Dunn. But he was at a party. Somebody knew he was at that party. There were plenty of people at it. Somebody was able to tell the Kenyan cartel where he would be. It, well, they didn't just find him by chance. So the number of times criminals are murdered by people who they would trust or have no suspicion about. It's really, really interesting that there are always what would be called rats. Fascinating. And I, I suppose, yeah, I mean, you only really ever hear about the trigger man, but the, I mean, a, a hit like this, a sophisticated gangland hit requires multiple elements and, and, and multiple people. Uh, it's a conspiracy uh, involving a lot of people. And I, mean, I think this other female that's under arrest is also uh, associated in some way um, with one of the arrested men. So there, there is a lot of facets to this. Yeah, sorry, go on. And th there's another interesting aspect to this. You mentioned the Audi car. I think that was the getaway drive. That, my information is that car was bought. 
So if you look back 10 or 15 years ago, an awful lot of cars used in murders would have been stolen. But in the last five or so years, there has been a shift where you know, you remember they were called company cars, not necessarily this car, but your cars you can buy for three or four hundred quid. And it seems that there is a paradigm shift where criminals and terrorist organizations like the new IRA and stuff, they, they've done this. They actually go and buy cars and then, you know, they would keep them for a few months and then use them. It used to be that they would be stolen, but now there has been a shift that they buy them almost like throwaway phones. You, you buy them for cash and you buy them off the internet or whatever. But it's just an interesting aspect that more and more cars used in murders are actually being bought and not stolen. It's interesting. An Audi A4 is not exactly cheap either, is it? I mean. <laughs> no, no, but, I, but, but I, think, I think one reason for that is, you know, if you're caught with a stolen car, and you're in super trouble. Whereas if you buy a car, and oh, you know you can do things about registering and all, it it probably is less problematic to go and buy a car. Although it probably does help the investigation because they can go and they can check where it was bought and everything. But there has been a definite trend: more and more murder cars, shall we say, are not being stolen; they're being bought for, on the market for cash. Um, in this case, just as we were mentioning, the different individuals involved, we think, or so the suspicion is, that there are at least two if not three major criminal gangs that were involved in sanctioning this hit against Gary Carey and that's because <clears throat> he was supposedly muscling in on territory um, and what I think what's interesting about that overall picture and I think we can discuss this like is that the fallout of the Kinahan Hutch feud has led to uh, gangs I suppose reasserting themselves and their position within uh Dublin even and trying to assert their authority and who is the biggest gang and you, we mentioned the family I mean the family are considered to be uh, correct me if I'm wrong they're considered to be probably the second biggest drugs gang in this country outside of the Kinahan cartel mm. they're, they're a very very big gang but they you mentioned at the start about keeping beneath the radar they don't really get involved in what the Kinahan clan or the Kinahan cartel would have done obviously you and I would you know, believe that Daniel Kinnan uh, and various people on the HUD, the Burn organised crime gang were involved in prosecuting the feud against Dodgers and it was a sort of personal thing. The family are really interesting because I think it's more professional than them and you never really hear them being involved in murders. Apart from this one, they are being looked at very, very strongly because he was trying to muscle in on their patch. But they are a very significant gang. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a man caught with money belonging to the family, drugs money. Now, it was, it, was, it was down the country, it was about four million quid, and that wasn't even a week's profit for that gang. And that shows you how big they are. So there is a significant guard investigation against the family. They are a very, 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 very big gang, but they don't have the lack of control that elements of the Kenyan cartel would I would have to say they're, they're, they're effectively more professional. Interesting. So much so that we can't actually name who they really are. Um, I mean, we obviously know who the leaders of the gang are, but for legal reasons and for the fact that these individuals, just many of them don't have the convictions in which we can name them. Uh, we have we refer to them as the family. These are names given to them by the media, but it means that we're able to write about them without necessarily having to name them. I, I've said this before. I, I'm not a big fan of, of uh, nicknames. But sometimes they're unavoidable. Like, for example, we were talking about Eamon, Eamon Dunn. He was nicknamed the Dawn. Now, the reason I, I don't think we give them or they're given. I, I'm trying to see if I've ever given anybody a nickname. I haven't. I don't think I have. But we don't use nicknames to glamorise them. We use nicknames because it's better than writing a West Dublin crime gang who are involved in X in every story or in every. You have to shorten it. You have to syncopate it and do it that way. So that's why I think that's why we do them. 
I think you got to identify them, haven't you? And especially when you say West Dublin crime gang, I mean, there's so many West Dublin crime gangs. Um, and Didi O'Driscoll is a, is a major organised criminal in this area. As I said, the, the the at least two of the individuals who are currently under arrest in relation to this murder are known associates of Didi O'Driscoll. Um, just to, to, to give people an idea of who he is, it, there, there was a High Court case in 2019 where... Um, there was evidence of O'Driscoll running an extortion and protection racket in the Cherry Orchard area, and um, there were the the Criminal Assets Bureau uh, actually told how how Didi O'Driscoll was the the leader of a criminal organisation, which they said was involved in the large scale distribution of heroin, cocaine, cannabis uh, across Ballyfermot, at Kylemore, uh, Starsfield, Crosswood, and the Cherry Orchard. Areas, so it's he's been named in court as being the leader of a major criminal organization. That's why we can associate him and name him in that way. Thank God for the criminal assets bureau naming <laughs> people in court in that sense, because it does. Oh, and I'm being entirely serious because it does give us protection. Look, yeah. Ireland's defamation laws and other being reformed at the minute. Ireland's defamation laws are so, uh, as a journalist, they're so onerous that. One step out of line, and we're banjoed. Now it's okay for people on social media. I mean, I always say this you know, the family if they're named or whatever, they won't go after Johnny X45321 on Twitter. <laughs> They'll go after Paul Healy and Mick O'Toole and the star who's, who are part of a large organisation. So people can name people on social media. That's grand. But, they, they, you know, people come after us when newspapers name them. So that's why, so the, you know, the Criminal Assets Bureau, it does when it is, when things are opened in court, things are said in court, that gives us privilege uh, and protection to name various people. Like even, you know, we did that with Liam Byrne, for example, because the Criminal Assets Bureau said they named him. And, and you know, they were very active. So it, it's a bit of cover in it. But, you know, they do help sh- us shine a light or their, their actions do help us shine a light on what's going on in the world. Yeah, and from that case, we we gained a bit of an insight into the finances of that criminal gang. Um, they they mentioned uh, in the case that 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 the the associates of of Didi O'Driscoll, um, that they'd received over half a million uh, from three building companies in 2017. So they're getting their revenue through streams like that legitimate streams like that um that is where you know oftentimes criminal gangs conceal uh their wealth and launder their money through legitimate uh assets but the, i mean that's that's probably only a drop in the pond uh for an organization of that size do you do you, i mean you must have written about dd o'driscoll multiple times you know over the years yeah yeah we've been aware of him for a long time and he and he and he, and he has a very long history there was something about Animal cruelty as well. He, he, he was named, you know, was he convicted of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll I do my own research on him. And you're talking about back into the 90s here, I think. Yeah. That he, 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 he was, yeah, a jaguar and an African serval uh, discovered in his garage in uh, 1997. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really weird. You have to, you, you hear so many facts as a journalist that you hear Didi O'Driscoll. If you ask me to do Didi O'Driscoll's background, I'd be aware of him. You'd know, all right, yeah. But... We hear so many facts and we hear so many pieces of information that sometimes you just have to stop and go back and research because it's it's like a massive flow of information. And we could be talking about 40 suspects or 40 people of interest at any one time. It's Sometimes you have so much information and then you have to stop and go, right, what's Didi O'Driscoll's background? So what I can remember is that extortion in Cherry Orchard and, the, and the, they always remember the Jaguar. And, and, he, and it's safe to say, I won't say where, but he does live outside Dublin now. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting you raise just, you know, how, but also when we cover stories, we don't know all the facts, the same as the guards don't know all the facts. And, we, and we're drip fed then maybe even 1% of the information. Um, like, for instance, on this murder of, of Gary Carey, um, there was initially confusion over 
who to blame. I think I think I can recall covering it and being told by sources that they were looking at the family mm. in relation to it. And then you had heard, uh, I think it was the same day, associates of Didi O'Driscoll were involved. Mm. And initially it was kind of, we were nearly working against each other because it's like we're hearing opposing things. But it turned out that both were true. Yeah. This is suspected to have been effectively a team up uh, where where interests collided and there was an understanding that this person needed to go uh, between multiple gangs. So... And I, I, and I, that's a very important point. And I'm not going to be, I don't want to be facetious because we're talking about life and death. But see, you know, when people are murdered, the gangs don't leave calling cards. Do you know what I mean? Like, say, for example, that during the Troubles, the IRA would have admitted responsibility or the UVF or whatever. And they said, you know, they would have rung with a recognised code or I would have got them, you know, all old journalists likely would have got them. So say even the Kenan feud, right? You know, it, 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 we, that's why I always say they're attributed, to, say 16 of the murders are attributed to the Kenan and Cartel because they don't say they did it. They don't uh, declaim responsibility. Now, you, most of the time you do hear very quickly, but there was a couple of, say, you know, there's a couple of murders there that guards and, you know, by afterwards journalists really had to put two and two together. You know, obviously, you know, say when Eddie Hutch was murdered, God love him, we know we'd have known very quickly that it was the Kinnins because it was the febrile time. But there were other murders in those feuds that really, it took a while for them to percolate out. And and even that murder there, you're, you're talking about Gary Carey. Yeah, look, guards have suspects straight away. So there's the family and then there's the associates of Didi O'Driscoll. But, you know, they have to try and work it out and by extension, so do we. And we have to tell people what it is. But, you know, we, we could say there he's a suspect, but... You know, there's a dynamic in any investigation and a couple of days later they might go, well, he's not ruled out or he's ruled out and he's not. You know what I mean? Like, let me give you a perfect example. Um, the, uh, remember the young fella who was murdered uh, down in Sheriff Street as part of the feud? The, 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 what, 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 I can't remember his name. Martin O'Rourke. I can tell you that uh, uh, there was a certain person very, very quickly was nominated as a suspect for that murder because of his his shape and his build and if you remember because he was he was quite stocky but and it was for about maybe three or four weeks that you know he was being mentioned and then he was eliminated but you know people are nominated as the guards were saying that that's that's exactly what happens you know I, I think I don't I don't we don't know all the aspects of this Garda investigation, but definitely what we're hearing is that this this particular investigation into Gary Carey has progressed uh, quite quickly. I mean, I know I know it happened. Um, what are you talking? 2020, 2020 it happened last year. I mean, but they 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 uh, I mean, they've made such progress. I wonder is it a different scene now for the guards like when they were investigating these murders in the Kinna and Hutch feud? It was new territory, but like at this stage now, there's a level of sophistication and expertise within the guards that, I mean, they've already identified quite a number of suspects in this case. Clearly, they've mounted a huge amount of evidence. So, you know, has the scene changed? I wonder, are they better equipped now to investigate a gangland murder um, on this kind of scale than maybe they would have been certainly back in 2016 when when, when it really hit the fan? Well, no, I, I do think that the, the, the general guard uh, capability or expertise has improved well before 2016. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt. Now, I think the Kenyans were such a massive problem that it took the guards a while to get to grips with them. But uh, let's go back to the 90s. It'd be very interesting to see how many gangland murders were solved in the 90s. You know, 
you think you have things like the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation, you know, you have specialist units, there's Doc B who have intelli- their security intelligence, and there's the CHIS system now, when it's covered human intelligence sources. So the professionalism of the, the Garda for serious and organised crime has improved massively since the 1990s. I, I have absolutely no doubt about it. But even things, you know, their technological advances, CCTV, mobile phone data, you know, cell site analysis, they have a huge range of tools. Like I often wonder, you know, you always think about getting the perfect murder. There, there are very few of them because like how many places in Ireland don't have CCTV? You know, there's somewhere, you know, the vast majority in some ca- most cases, somewhere along the, the route, people are caught in CCTV. Cause, and there's so many of them now. So there have been technological advances, but also capability advances with regards since the 1990s. I have absolutely no doubt about that. But especially at a hotel, a major hotel like that, um, you would hope and you would think that there would be plenty of good CCTV from this particular case. But it, maybe it shows you the determination of this gang to murder Gary Carey, given it was the third attempt. Um, but, I mean, there's got to be CCTV footage in relation to this case. There has to be. Oh, look, look, absolutely. even you're right in the, in the hotel, in the hotel underground car park outside. But even, look, it's on a very, you know, it's, it's on a very art busy road they're just reading uh, leading into dublin you know what i mean it's in that area i would i would say there'd be they would the killers and the gang will have been caught on dozens of cameras you know it's it's impossible for them not to have been caught they will have been able to map the vast majority of the route in and out for that gang well we'll, we'll continue to follow that with interest uh, we'll, we'll see what where those arrests go um uh, proposed to move on to, uh, we, we're continuing to talk about Hutches and Kinnahan's, but with good reason. Um, so you had a story, uh, I believe it was Monday, am I right? Uh, on the Hutch Organised Crime Group. So we have spoken about this on the pod and obviously evidence was given in the Special Criminal Court in relation to the Hutch Organised Crime Gang. But I don't think anybody has, I suppose, can uh, up until your piece on Monday, concisely put it together, I suppose. And you also found out some further facts about the makeup of that gang. Yeah, so you're right. Dave Gallagher, superintendent, detective superintendent in Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, gave evidence, and you were there, about them being a hierarchical gang that has really crystallised. I think they say this, it's really crystallised after the, 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 since they've started the feud, right? But this gang, and the reason why we did this is, I, I think we sort of had a sort of, maybe a wee bit blasé attitude towards them. Nobody really sat down and said, okay, what has this gang been involved in for the last 40 years? And it is at least a 40-year gang. So we were able to establish, Gardy believed they were involved in as many as nine murders. Now, we all know that the the Hutch gang was involved. uh, It was the the murder of David Byrne. But but that was not the last murder. There was uh, Michael Keogh, who was killed in 2017. I think it was around, was it April? 27, oh, end of May 2017, he was murdered. And just like Gary Carey, he was murdered in an underground car park. It was on Dorset Street. It was exactly the same scene. It was bizarre. I was there. And because it was so self-contained, there was nothing. People were driving down Dorset Street and there was no problem. But inside, a man was dead and had been shot dead. So the guy, and nobody has been convicted and nobody has been charged over that. Uh, that was a very professional hit on that man. He was lying there for quite some time. Nobody saw the killers coming or going. So that was very professional. But there, the first murder, it was around 1984. A 15-year-old boy called Gerard Morgan was shot dead. Now, but there have been other, uh, as I say, nine altogether. So a very dangerous gang. They're involved in 
we know they're involved in armed robberies. We say, for example, in 2009, there was the Bank of Ireland robbed Taggart kidnapping at College Green, and that was something like 7.6 million euro. One and a half bit million euro was recovered. The vast bulk of it wasn't recovered. Now, that may be one of the reasons for the Kenan Hutch feud, because Gary Hutch would have been involved in that. And the belief is he gave Daniel Kenan, who we know the Kenans are heavily involved in money laundering, he gave Daniel Kenan some of the proceeds from that to invest. And the deal went south and sort of that was the start of the problems, although Gary Hutch did want to try and take over from Kenan. And so, so it's very complicated. But they're a big gang. They're involved in extortion. We know they're involved in extortion. We know that they're involved in financing drug deals. We know that they were they worked with the Kenan cartel. We know that they worked with people in England and Birmingham. We also know that they have, Gary would believe that they have infiltrated the guards. We know that there are three, I'm not saying these people are involved, but three men have been, three Gardaí have been suspended over alleged links to the Hodge gang. But my sources say that investigators believe that there are other members of the Gardaí Shikana who have been compromised and who have not been discovered yet. So they're a very big gang, very professional. That Yeah, and... Um, they're just, we just wanted to coalesce everything and put everything together so people can say, right, this is what they have done. Because you hear about the Hodge gang did this, the Hodge gang did that. So this is the first time anybody has sat down and said, this is what they're suspected of. And it was quite a lot. And it's, and they have got, you know, lots of money, made millions, and they've invested millions, property empires, property all, all over the place, apartment blocks and business blocks in Ireland. So, you know, they're dwarfed by the Kenan cartel. I did say that before, but that doesn't mean they're tiny. They're a very dangerous gang and they're very, very professional and very well connected. Oh, yeah. Well, despite their size, they, they, they've had a huge impact, clearly, uh, on the gangland scene. Um I'm being cautious here, obviously, in identifying named individuals because they weren't even said in court, but obviously it it was it was described as being an interfamilial. Uh, it's it's a it's a family uh, effectively that that run this organization, um, and we do know <laughs> certain members. Um, but it's also important to say that there are other people who are not intimately connected with the who are non Hutch people, shall we say, who are very important players in the Hutch organized crime gang. Yeah, um, well, I mean, we 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 know uh, of of several individuals who we won't name here who, um, well, they have family connections, but they're not directly family members. Um, but even in the midst of the Kinahan Hutch feud, they remained loyal to the Hutch family, um, and they continued to stand by them. And they did they 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 did that knowing that their own lives would be put in danger. And and indeed, some of them were targeted as part of the feud. Um, James Mago Gately was targeted, uh, survived um, an attempt on his life uh, in the midst of the feud, and he continues to have a threat over his life. He's not a direct family member, but he is considered to be an associate. He's one example. And it's important to say there are Hutch family members who aren't involved in crime. But it's also important to say, say, for example, we know that one non-Hutch person, shall we say, would have been intimately involved with the Kinahan cartel. And, 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 you know, they had a business. One person from the Hutch side had a business with a person from the, the Kinahan side. But that person isn't wouldn't be a Hutch. But it shows you how close they were to the Kinahan cartel and how personal things are. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about Patsy Hutch while we're on the subject. Um, yes. I'll be brief on this, but last week I did uh, approach Patsy Hutch. He didn't want to speak to me. Um, I expected as much, but I look, I felt, um, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Mick, 
that from a journalistic standpoint, Patsy Hutch had to be doorstepped. He had to be approached after Miss Justice Tara Byrne said in the Special Criminal Court effectively that uh, that it that it was possible that he was the person who arranged, organised the Regency Hotel shooting. She also went further and said that he was centrally involved in the transfer of the AK-47 rifles um, on the 9th of March uh, 2016. We know those rifles ended up in the possession of Shane Roan. He was caught with those guns and they were identified to be the same Kalashnikov weapons that were used in the shooting. So you have someone now that is walking around the streets of Dublin, a free man, not charged with any criminal offence, uh, who has been named by a court, a high court judge uh, in the special criminal court as possibly being the person who arranged the most high profile shooting in the country. And he's not been asked about it. No one's asked him about it. Now, with good reason. I mean, you're not necessarily going to just approach Patsy Hutch on any day of the week. Uh, he is a man who knows that his life is still in danger. Um, despite that, he goes for regular walks around the city centre uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I'm not saying he does the exact same route every day. I don't know. We're not stalking the man, but he is well known and to, to well seen in the city walking around and about so i felt it was reasonable to approach him i didn't think it was reasonable to go and knock on the door um in champions avenue if champions avenue if you, you probably know it is quite a small cul-de-sac um and uh you know in fairness there is a, a 24-hour guard post uh close to that house and they're keeping watch and with good reason um but if he comes out and about onto a public street, I think it's perfectly reasonable as a journalist to approach him and ask him, does he want to say anything in relation to the judge's comments? That's what I asked him. I walked across the road and I approached him quite friendly and I immediately identified myself as a journalist and just said, you know, do you want to respond to what the judge has to say about you? Uh, I mean, you have to be quick with these types of things because a person you don't know what necessarily the reaction is going to be. It's And I, I, I mean, guessed that he would probably walk away from me quite quickly, which he did. Um, so I just got, I'm a journalist and I'd like to ask you, would you like to respond to what the judge had to say? And he kind of, I, I would say he rolled his eyes at me, kind of, it was initially sort of a deer cotton headlights sort of moment. It kind of like, who the, f who the fuck are you? Which I can understand. Once I said journalist, it was a roll of the eyes and... The rest of what I had to say, I don't know whether it registered or whether he even cared. He was already walking on. Um, I didn't continue to follow him. I, he knows full well why I'm approaching him. He obviously doesn't want to comment. He doesn't want to. He's not interested in addressing it. So that was it. But I'm surprised that, um, well, I'm not, I, I suppose I understand why we haven't approached him before. But when a judge in one of the highest courts in the land is naming you, uh, in relation to this major offence. I think we have to approach him. Even if we know he's going to say nothing, I think it's, it was the right thing to do journalistically. I don't know if you agree with me, but I'm, I hope you do. Uh, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. We're entitled to ask because our, our readers and our listeners are entitled to know. And as you say, a judge did make pretty strong comments about him. I want to raise one thing. I want to raise one aspect about this. Uh, I When I'm thinking about doing a doorstep I get nervous but when I commit and I start doing it the nerves disappear so if I had been walking up to Mr Hutch I wouldn't be nervous but I would have been nervous sort of thinking about it and preparing for it but he did one thing which I find very interesting he blanked you well he rolled his eyes to journalist and then just 
split second decision to con- to just ignore me and keep walking and blank me. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminded me of doorstep. I did. God, it's it's amazing things you remember. Maybe twenty years ago, a guy had been killed, and I, I, I was, it was either. Collins Avenue or Griffith Avenue in North Dublin. I always get them mixed up, but one of the two of them. And there was a fella I needed to talk to. And I still remember it. And he was coming out of the house. I approached him, said who it was. And he didn't skip a beat. He just walked past me. Completely blanked me. I did not exist. And that really grates with me. See, call me a, whatever you want to call me. No problem. Don't blank me. He completely, <laughs> bl- and it's, I still remember it now, 20 years later. It's just, it's, I think it's it's a very effective tool. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I've had it happen to me a few times. Um, yeah, I don't know whether people are advised uh, to just to do that or not, but I've had it happen more than a few times. Yeah, so it's it's a look that I, I we're both well used to. Yeah, um, but I, I feel the same way. I would rather somebody said to me no comment or fuck off or whatever. Um, but when you are blanked like that, yeah, you do feel a little bit kind of. <laughs> No, like, I mean, I, I say something, you know. Yeah, just, I, you I, don't I, exist. I understand why Patsy Hutch is keeping his mouth closed. I mean, look, uh, Patsy Hutch is not charged with any criminal offence. Um, but but a, a judge has, has accused him of being centrally involved in a major, if not, if not the biggest, most well-known uh, gangland hit in the country. And it, it remains to be seen whether anything will be done in relation to that. We know the Garda investigation is is open. Um It'll be interesting to see because obviously the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall, I don't think it, they can ever rely upon that again. So what evidence do they have against Patsy Hutch if they're ever going to mount any case against Patsy Hutch? There's questions to be answered there. But anyway... Sorry, Paul, can I just... Can I just I, I, while you've been talking, I've been thinking, just being blanked. It's amazing the things you remember. 1997. This goes back a long way. I, I still remember this. I was I was working for the Irish News in Belfast at the time when we were covering. I was at you know the Gravatti Road, the Drum Cree Parade standoff. I did it for four years in a row. It's horrendous. God love the people up there. Probably people in Gravatti Road just treated like dirt. But one night, I was there, and there were all these international observers. You know, we have legal observers, and, and he was an American fella. I was at the Irish News, which would be quite a well-respected paper in the north. You know, and it's basically as a community leading paper for many Catholics and nationalists up there. So I, I thought, right, I'll, I'll talk to this fella. It was middle of the night, maybe two o'clock in the morning, and I went up to talk to him. He turned away, and I thought, right, he hasn't heard me. So I said, sorry, sir, can I? And he turned away again, and he, compl- he completely dissed me. And I still remember that. So it's amazing you remember being blank. Yeah. It's like a rejection, is it? For <laughs> it is, you know, uh, my poor wee f- f- chat, fragile ego. Anyway, well, I, I interrupted you. I just wanted to rant. Um, yeah, no, just uh, um, I'm conscious of time here. We've a lot to talk about, but just also on the Hutch trial fallout, uh, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy. Look, we were wrong, but we're going to explain why we were well, maybe not maybe not wrong. <laughs> we were, see, the sentences were a little bit heftier than expected. Yes, so it, it was around the five year mark. We thought possibly right because we were looking at other. Remember, we we talked about Dial getting four years and didn't Patrick the father get two years? So we we thought it would be higher than that. And I did mention that you know pleading not guilty would have to be taken into account. So it was heftier than we thought, but we did think it would be heftier than the other sentences. In fairness, because of the other factors, but the judge did hockey them. Yeah, uh, she did. I mean, look, um, 
both of these men decided to take it all the way to trial despite the evidence against them the cctv footage was pretty damning in relation to both of them um in particular paul murphy i mean it, it was his taxi and the judges identified it as being so they they played a central role the judge said in facilitating this murder by using their vehicles as uh, effectively getaway cars uh, for the gang we know that jason bonnie uh, drove flat cap kevin murray um based off the cctv evidence um and, and the judge was particularly damning in relation to Jason Bonney and his witnesses saying that they told the most malevolent lie. Um, they had perpetuated this malevolent lie that Jason Bonney's father was the person driving the BMW and not him. Um, and the interesting, I suppose, uh, what, what, what's, what's, sorry, I'll, I'll mention just, sorry, the sentences that they got, uh, Jason Bonney got a eight and a half year sentence and Paul Murphy got a nine year sentence sentence um the reason why paul murphy got a slightly heftier sentence is because i think of his convictions he has 67 previous convictions whereas jason bonnie they said in court has no previous convictions so a slightly heftier sentence for paul murphy um i think they'll serve what are we going to say six years of that well it, yeah six so seven that, years of that. well yeah 75 percent so yeah. oh my miles are terrible yeah yeah unless it is possible to get the enhanced remission which is the third who knows um i know it, it, it i think they might be entitled to try for it um but the minimum the maximum the minimum they will get is 25 percent off and it's backdated from when they went into custody when they're convicted on the 17th of april um it's just the the interesting follow from this is that uh after uh this case came to an end, I was contacted by an uncle of Jason Bonney. So a further twist in the already uh, full of twist story of, of Jason Bonney. I was contacted by a man named Matthew Bonney, um, who I recall was in the trial one day. There was a, uh, we, we didn't report on this at the time, but there was a very dramatic incident uh, one of the days uh, after the evidence of Paul Byrne was heard. So Paul Byrne was a brother-in-law of Jason Bonney and he gave evidence about spending the day, the 5th of February, the day of the Regency shooting with Willie Bonney, Jason's father. And he can recall coming back from a holiday with his wife, uh, would have been Willie Bonney's daughter, and they went to their house uh, in North Dublin and they spent the day with them and they can recall... Uh, seeing the news about the Regency on the news and you know we mentioned before on this pod you remember where you were kind of like 9-11 they remember where they were they were they spent the day with Willie Bonney they insisted Willie Bonney never drove that BMW X5 he had a different car um, and and they, he was with him the entire time that day and his evidence was accepted by the court as being uh, beyond all reasonable doubt being the true version of events contrary to the version of events by Jason Bonney that it was his father driving the BMW his father, who was in his 70s at this stage, acting as a getaway driver in the Regency. Extraordinary thing to believe, but that was his claim. So I was contacted by Matthew Bonney, who, I, I, as I mentioned to you, there was an incident in court. After Paul Byrne gave his evidence, Matthew Bonney uh, got up the next day in court and, and started shouting at, at the judges and said, uh, the, the man that gave evidence in here the other day, Paul Byrne, is a liar. He told lies to this court. Something to that effect, he said. And he he was removed from the courtroom uh, because you can't just get up in a courtroom and start shouting. Um, but I was contacted by Matthew Bonney um, and he told me he wanted to tell his story and he insisted uh, that that he knows that his nephew, Jason Bonney, is innocent and he says he knows that on the basis of his brother, Willie Bonney, Jason's uncle, sorry, Jason's father, 
it gets confusing, but I hope you're with me. Uh, Jason's father, i.e. his brother, he says, confessed to him years ago uh, to being that getaway driver, the driver of the BMW. Um, listen, I think people are entitled to tell their stories. Uh, this is, was a tricky one um, because obviously, look, the courts have found Jason Bonney guilty. Jason Bonney is guilty of this offence. He has been convicted for it. And the evidence in relation to Willie Bonney being the driver was effectively thrown out by the court. But this is somebody else telling their story. And he is the brother of Willie Bonney. So I do think that he's entitled to tell his story, um, albeit not without challenge. And that's the thing. We have to challenge people when they make extraordinary claims. And I, I, I wasn't a friendly interview. I met Matthew Bonney, confirmed that he was who he says he was. Um, and I, I, look, I put hard questions to him, like, why didn't he go to the guards about this? Why didn't he go to anybody about this? Um, why wasn't he a witness in the trial? It's a legitimate question. Why was he not called as a witness in the trial if he had such exonerating evidence? Uh, he claims that the solicitors didn't want him to appear as a witness for whatever reason. Read into that if whatever way you want. Um, and he claims that he doesn't trust the guards. Why would he go to the guards? Uh, he claims that Willie Bonney, his own brother, um, who he, he admits he had a, an on-off kind of a strange relationship with, uh, that he had a, his brother was 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 quite unwell and uh, was he died in 2019. So in 2018, he says his, his brother confessed to him, said that he had done the job as a favor uh, to somebody who has now since been murdered. And he took that to mean Eddie Hutch, because he says his brother was good friends with Eddie Hutch and had worked with Eddie Hutch and there was a relationship there um, and that he regretted doing it and that he didn't know that there was going to be a murder. He thought there was going to be some sort of uh, incident, but he didn't think that somebody was going to be murdered and he agreed to the job because he owed Eddie Hutch a favour. That's the allegation. Um, you have to take of it what you will. And, and I felt that that allegation had to be squared with the evidence we heard in court, but also... The other side of the family, the side of the family that, that have defended the name of Willie Bonney, that is his daughters and his son-in-law, had to be contacted prior to this story being published. And look, they weren't happy uh, that Matthew Bonney was speaking. Uh, they, they were upset initially, but they did give me a statement uh, saying, look, that they refute all of the claims of Matthew Bonney. Uh, they, they defended Willie Bonney's name in court. Uh, they, I'm, I'm told that he was a loving father um somebody who was a a active member in the community and in the parish and th that family are heartbroken and completely devastated um those two daughters in particular are absolutely heartbroken and shattered that their father his name was dragged into this um because he's dead and he can't defend himself that he, that his good name was tarnished by his own son um who tried to claim that he was a getaway driver and i mean they probably would have rather that Matthew Bonney, uh, that his story wasn't heard. I think Matthew Bonney probably would have spoken to someone. His story had to be heard, but in the context of the evidence of the court and of what the family had to say about, about, about their own father. So that's the way we reported it. But it's fascinating to see the split in a family there, the, the breakup of a family and the emotions that are involved. Um, just heartbreaking stuff. What, what do we know? Was, was Willie Bonnie in his seventies at the time of the Regency? He would have been, yeah. Mm. Okay. It's hard. It's hard to mm. imagine. Like, look, Peter Tyrrell, another witness in the case. Obviously, his evidence was not accepted by the court, but he was no friend of Jason Bonnie, and uh, he said that he can remember the BMW driving right up his hole 
following him around the Artane roundabout. And then that was picked up on CCTV footage at his house. Uh, and he insists that he remembers that being Willie Bonnie behind the wheel. And he knew Willie Bonnie from a civil case that he had taken against him. And he insists that that's what he saw. I think his evidence is probably the most, um, if you're going to believe that narrative at all, his evidence is the most compelling because he has nothing, I suppose, on the surface that, that you, to gain from uh, speaking his truth about what he saw. Yeah, look, everybody's entitled to give their truth on what they, you know, but just a getaway driver in his 70s. It's hard to I imagine. Don't know. Yeah, it's yeah no, it's not beyond the rounds of possibility, but yeah. It's not. Look, in the I end of the day, the court has found Jason Bonney guilty the name of Willie Bonney was exonerated in the court. Uh, if Matthew Bonney has evidence uh, to the contrary, he should be going to the guards in relation to that. And Jason Bonney, I'm sure in his appeal, if he launches an appeal, um, will will raise all of that. But look, it's, it's a story that just keeps on going. Uh, I think we should move on because we're tight for time. But you had, uh, we, we've spoken on this pod about the the Annie McCarrick case. Don't propose to go through all the details of that again. People are familiar with it. But you uh, learned of a very significant development in the investigation into Annie's murder. Yes. And it's important to say, because it was on, I think it was on TV and it was asked about this new development. It It's a new development in the sense that we've learned about it. So essentially, but it's not new to the guards, obviously. They've known about this for quite some time. But we, what you were saying about we only get one or two percent, we have to go and get dig, go digging and, and you find out things. So I find out, basically, there are uh, two brothers who are suspects in this case. Now, um, I'll have to be careful what I say legally, but the, if you remember the focus of the search into Annie McCarrick, who disappeared in March 1993, was uh, initially around Enniskerry and there had for a long time it had, there'd been sightings over there and then she was supposedly sighted in Johnny Fox's pub which is in Glen Cullen in South Dublin it's about four or five kilometres away so really for for several, a long long time the folk, the thought had been that she something happened to her in that Enniskerry Glen Cullen South County Dublin area I think they're pretty they're, and the case has been reviewed by the Cold Case Review the Serious Crime Review team and it has been upgraded to murder. They announced it was upgraded to murder on the, on the 30th of anniversary of her disappearing. Obviously, the team has looked at it and has decided there's compelling evidence that she was murdered. But one of the things that has come out of that is there were, there were these two brothers who were interviewed uh, before uh, who uh, about their knowledge of Miss McCarrick and they both gave sort of alibis or they accounted for themselves at the time. Now, they're back very firmly in the focus, in the sights of the guards. And I was speaking to somebody yesterday who said the guards are going to go down the road with these two men. In other words, they're very much the suspects. Now, it's 30 years on. Who knows what might happen? Alibis might not hold up. Alibis might might hold up. You never know. It might completely ex- exculpated and exonerated. But it's just a significant development because it had always been about one suspect. But it's now two brothers are very much the focus of this investigation. And look, hopefully they get some closure. But I mean, I was asked about this. Do the guards think they'll get a charge? Guards don't get charges. Guards do their investigation. Then they send a file to DPP and it's up to DPP. Look at the Deirdre Jacob case. Guards had their man, Larry Murphy, asked for the DPP for a charge, sent the file to DPP. DPP said no. So, you know, the guards do their bit, but it's up to the law officer to decide and who knows they, they know, they'll see all the evidence but there is a determination and a focus on these two two men now. Is it fair to say that there 
there is a feeling that maybe some mistakes were made in the original investigation because the focus went perhaps to the wrong place. And then there's something about faxes, isn't there, that were that were missed? Yeah. So essentially there was the RT documentary last Monday night where people had said that they had been concerned about a certain man, one of the two brothers basically, and that Annie may have been assaulted and that she may have been the victim of, of stalking and harassment. Now the story was that faxes were sent to someone in Ireland who was asked to give them to Gardaí. Now, the two investigators, ex-investigators in the team, said we didn't see them. And I know that Alan Bailey, who would be the cold case guy, he's a retired guard, and I, wrote, I mentioned him before, he's written a couple of fantastic books. Um, but And he said on the record, he didn't see, that he examined it in 1998-99, and he didn't see anything about faxes, and he, and he would remember. But I know Pat O'Connell in the Sunday World had a story, and I think the Sunday Independent had as well, that guards are now saying that they've had the faxes the whole time. Now, there's, I'll put it this way. We now have things with the guards. I was talking about the professionalism of guards has improved massively for murders and stuff. Um, there's now what they call IRCs. You and I would call them bookmen or bookwoman, but it's instant room coordinator. So he collates, he or she collates everything. I, I think things may have been a wee bit more chaotic in the 90s. And the sense I'm getting is that they had them, but they, the team may not have had them. They may have gone somewhere else and they may only have you know, may not have been put in the right box because it was, it wasn't computerised. Everything was by boxes and things can go astray. But guards are now saying they've had them the whole time. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think they have the faxes and, and that's why I think the one of the reasons why these two men are being treated as suspects. Look, if one of them assaulted Annie McCarrick and then Annie McCarrick disappears, and you're quite right, the focus was in Ennis Kerry, but... I think in the last year and very senior guardy would have said this pri- privately, they don't believe she was in Enniskerry. So they're going back to the last confirmed sighting, which was in a bank in AIB in Sandymount. She lived in that area. So really the focus, I don't, I don't know if it was a mistake, but if you follow the evidence and there were people were swearing blind that they'd seen her. And, you know, there was a, a, a worker in Johnny Fox's who was absolutely convinced it was her. But people can make mistakes. And that's why I never really get overexcited about some witnesses and their details are wrong because if you ever give evidence in a case you, you know people can misremember people can genuinely believe they've seen one thing when it's something else so look there's no doubt the focus was in a scary but it has now shifted back to, to Dublin 4 and they, they believe the answer is in Dublin 4 and that's you know you don't have to be an idiot to work this out if somebody is allegedly assaults Annie Annie disappears of course, there are going to be people of interest. You know, of course, they're going to be suspects because that's the last clue they have. So I think that explains why they, these two men are their focus now. Yeah, fascinating. We'll see where that goes. Um, I want to briefly mention, uh, obviously, because it's it's in the news today, uh, there was a, a very terrible attack there in, in the County Mead area yesterday and a video of it circulated on social media. This kid is only 14 years of age, suffered a concussion, broken teeth, uh, bruising, and a shoe print was left in his forehead. Um, I watched the video. It's pretty bad. Um you know, look, I, I wasn't that long ago that I was in school, but I suppose it's been a while. And uh, I, I can recall people uh, being uh, randomly attacked or attacked because of who they were in particular. And um, I thought that we'd kind of gone past those times because I, especially in the last 10 years, I would have said that we as a society have grown up and that that, that, that even the youth are more uh, aware of of social issues and more accepting of one another. I'm not saying bullying and assaults don't go on, 
but you would think on a lesser scale. So to see something like this, it kind of immediately reminded me of being in school and 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 what witnessing some of these horrendous uh, incidents where, and it's just horrendous that someone would film it then and and share it on social media um and it's been widely shared i don't know if you watched it yourself mick but i know i i I want to talk about this i i specifically didn't watch it and the reason why i didn't watch it i wasn't working on it and you know i've seen i've seen too much and you've seen too much i i you know we've covered rape cases we've covered murder cases we've covered sexual abuse cases we've covered child sexual abuse material cases we've we, we have taken a lot in and i just made the conscious decision you know, I think I don't know what you. I'd be interested in what you think about this. I think when you and I are working on a bad case or a bad whatever, I think we look at it through a different lens. We look at it through the professional person, journalists, and you're writing down, taking notes, and you're just you've got your work mode on. I did not have my work mode on in relation to that story yesterday, and I thought, no, I don't want to watch that. You know, like I, I have seen too much, so I purposely didn't watch it because I found it very upsetting just reading about it and. Because I was would have been looking at it as a person, not a journalist. I thought, no, I, I don't need to see that. So that's that's why I didn't. And just you know, we've seen too much. Yeah, I mean, you you try not to to watch certain things, but I mean, if you do, you 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 are desensitized to to them definitely because mm. we work on on all manner of things. So yeah, you do get desensitized, and we've seen some things we'd rather not see, <laughs> to be honest mm-hmm. with you. But um. I think I think I couldn't avoid this video. It was all over social media. That's the problem. I mean, this oh, kid. Uh, the, the I can't imagine the like apart from obviously the pain, physical pain of the assault, but the humiliation then of of maybe having to see it and have it be shared multiple times uh, must be horrendous. I want to just read out a part of a statement here from a family member, um. I think it kind of sums up a, a lot of uh, a lot of it. Just no fourteen-year-old should ever beaten be beaten like that for anything at all, especially because of who he is. He's only a child, and it happened across the road from a family member where he was trying to get to. We are shocked, horrified, and upset that this can happen in this day and age. It was a number of people against one boy while others filmed it and posted it online. That is horrific and wrong. He is doing okay and being brave about it, but I don't think the whole brevity of the incident or shock has fully hit him yet. I I just find it very upsetting. I mean, I've got kids and you you automatically think about them. I I just couldn't, I, I just... I just find it very upsetting, I have to say, and that's why. And I also think we need to look after ourselves. We see too, as I said, we see too much and, you know... I, that was just too much for me. I thought, oh, I'm not, get, I'm not going to get into that. that. But I just keep thinking of that poor kid, and God love him, what he had to go through, the terror he must have. Uh, I, I just, it's very hard. You, you would hope, though, especially at that age group, that there is going to be a, a, a better focus on education in terms of, uh, of, of identity and acceptance, because at that age, it's crucial. Because if you start becoming a bully at that age, and you, you, you think it's fair to beat people up uh, for no reason at all uh, other than you don't like them or or how they identify or whatever it, it may be uh, what kind of adult are you going to grow into you know we, we that that's 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 the problem but uh, yeah we, can I I just want to mention I think we're probably nearly done Paul can I just mention one story very very quickly um, it, on a totally different tack uh, I did a story I, I sort of I scan international media and you have search words and I found a story the other day about two Irish truckers who were jailed for five years in France because they were after being caught with 380,000 euro of cannabis resin. Now here's the really interesting thing. They were still so got five years in the porridge. 
they got a 37 euro fine and they were barred permanently from the territory of France. But what's really interesting was they were caught on the 3rd of May and they were jailed on the 9th of May. No messing from the French. We cover cases here. It goes to the district court, goes to the circuit court in relation to that amount of money. Could be two years, could be three years, sometimes longer. A week, you're gone. Sweetie bottle, no messing. Really interesting. Jeez, if only we had a system like that here, it'd be far more efficient, wouldn't it? Although I don't think we have the room in the, in our prisons. <laughs> That's the problem. The other problem. Yeah. That's a fascinating story. We haven't even touched it. There's more we wanted to talk about. Well, we're, we're, uh, there's more. There always uh, we'll, is. We'll do one next week again. So yeah, yeah, yeah it'll be plenty to talk about. want to thank our listeners for again listening to us. Uh, I, I certainly want to thank you, Mick, for doing all the interviews you've done. I want to contribute more myself. Uh, it's just about uh, finding the time to do it. But we, we really do love doing this pod, both of us and we, we we're fully committed to it um and appreciate the listens so thanks very much thanks a lot cheers now thank you